Hello, my name is Philip Camella, and today we're going to have a conversation beyond science and religion. Breaking new ground in thinking, exploring the outer limits of what we know about the world and ourselves, unhindered by common beliefs and perceptions. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. Taking on subjects from the Big Bang, the multiverse, and evolution to the supernatural and the new rising consciousness. This is where scientists, philosophers, New Agers, and spiritualists come together to discuss where this world may be heading. Now here's your host, lawyer, philosopher, and the author of The Collapse of Materialism, Philip Camella. I think there's two things that are needed to go beyond anything. And by that, I mean going beyond a thought, an idea, a prejudice, a hang-up, a belief. You know, the show's called Beyond, Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. Well, to go beyond, I think you need these two things. I think you need an open mind, and I think you need to get over the doubt in your head that any such transcendence is possible. So to me, it all begins first with an open mind, and if you're so wrapped up into your beliefs your ideas, your um, prejudices that you cannot find a way out, then maybe there's no hope, and that's called hard-headedness, closed-mindedness. So you really got to open your mind first, I think. Uh, But then when you open your mind, you have this problem, which is then you have to decide upon something. You have to make decisions. You're, You're confronted with a host of alternatives. And this is where I think doubt comes in. And from from my own experience, I know I started uh, early on this topic. You know, I do have a philosophy degree, and philosophers do a lot of thinking. Some people would say that's all they do. But in this thought process, I came to the conclusion that doubt, in fact, was the devil. That doubt is this negative force that says something cannot be done, that second guesses, that stops dreaming. Uh, I have a pretty cool quote here that... um, from Theodore Roosevelt, who said, Second thoughts are like grief. They inhibit the vital onrush of life of the world's work. And that's really, I think, a big problem with doubt is that it sort of stops the flow. Now, today our guest is Ann Tucker, who has written a very accessible book on this very topic. The, the book is entitled Undoubtedly Awesome, Your Own Personal Roadmap, From Doubt to Flow. She's the co-founder of Gray Matter Partners, a leadership firm in Seattle, and founder of Wisdom Soup, an online social learning community that speeds up serendipity by connecting people with similar interests in spirituality. And I read that because I love the word and the concept of serendipity. So hopefully we'll we'll get into that a little bit. Okay, so Anne, welcome to the show. You're joining us from Seattle. Thank you very much. Thank you, Philip. Very happy to be here. Okay, so this is, uh, I warned you ahead of time, we're going to have as much fun as possible doing this because <laughs> I think that one thing really cool about your book is that it's very, uh, not only accessible, to, accessible, but it's practical. You know, a lot of times, I think if you could pick up a book and get and, and have one or two takeaways that sort of expand your horizons, that give you new ideas, that solves a problem you're doing well and i think your book does that so let let's start off a little bit about telling folks about yourself and how you came to write this book and so what what was your driver for for putting these 
ideas, your your system here in, in a book form? Sure. Uh, it happened really over a really long period of time. Um, the My focus on uh, decision-making started very early in my career. I was a negotiator for Microsoft uh, years ago and then left and went into leadership consulting and, again, found that, that, that what I had learned as a negotiator, that decision-making, focusing in on that gave me really amazing insights into how people would think and solve problems. And as a leadership coach, you end up collecting feedback on people. So you'll have a particular person you're coaching or working with, and you'll learn about why their strengths are, what their weaknesses are, and then you'll collect feedback from everybody that they work with. So it becomes this really interesting laboratory where you start to see um, patterns evolve. And for me, it just it was one of those things where the more I did it, the clearer and clearer and clearer it became. And then I started overlaying and comparing things and it and it it all just gelled. And and the model as I developed it, it really took about eight years to come together. And it was in little flashes of insight. And and now um it's really very fully baked and road tested. (laughs) So it was it was something that I used uh, enormously in my in my practice uh, as leadership coach. I used it a lot with individuals as well as with teams. But then um, I realized uh, I, as I applied it to myself, the learning that I had done, that I realized the place where it impacted me most was around the subject of doubt, that I realized that understanding how I make decisions, understanding my own particular decision style gave me really, really helpful insights to understand where I was getting stuck and why and what I could do about it. Okay, so that's, that is, uh, that's really uh, interesting. I, I want to focus on this doubt and flow, which is the title of the show, by the way, Doubt and Flow, because I, I really think they're, they're um, sort of, rich terms that we're going to explore a little bit but one of the one of the comments that I would make here that is coming up more and more I'm just wondering what your thoughts are is that it seems as if the business coaching world is sort of evolving uh, into adopting some of these quote-unquote spiritual concepts and mm-hmm. I, I want to use the word spiritual because I really think this is a field in search of a better name. Uh, some people call it New Age, um, yeah. spiritual. New I mean, thought. New thought. Right. And, and who knows? Yeah. And I'm not sure what to call it, frankly. That you know, I'm always, <laughs> And that's why I think it's a field in search of a better name. And I'm, I'm open for suggestions. But, right. but anyways, what is, your, what is your thought about this? Because you, because you came from a major uh, Fortune 10 company. And now and and now you write a book with does, you know, which does have I'm going to call it these new age overtones. Oh, for sure. What is your what is your um, thinking on 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 the um, the, sort of the relationship between? Yeah. And and how is this being accepted or or integrated in terms of corporate America today? Right, right. Yeah, it is. um, I think it's actually a fascinating time because um, I've seen such a massive shift in just, I would say, in the last 10 years. Um, And most of my clients have been in tech or medical technology. And that is a... uh, tends to be slower to adopt these kinds of ideas. I think I've seen, um, interestingly enough, 
more and more I have colleagues that are either internal to big companies or external as coaches um, or consultants who are integrating uh, mindfulness programs into big companies. So you'll hear uh, like Aetna, uh, the CEO of Aetna is very, very interested in mindfulness. So mindfulness is a really accessible aspect of the whole spirituality or new thought field. So it's it's a very comfortable way to bring it in. Um, uh, and that I'm seeing more and more. But it was only, gosh, it was only eight years ago that it was still pretty hush-hush. You weren't really allowed to talk about it. As a matter of fact, um, and one of the uh, companies that I know, the uh, CEO did try to bring in some new thought ideas into the company, and he did lose his position. He was he was forced out of the company for it. Yeah. So it was it was definitely something where you had to tread lightly. And we went from from that extreme where where the highest person in the company could lose their position for for these ideas to a place where now I have colleagues that are running out full blown mindfulness programs, and nobody is yet talking about guides or channels or yeah. anything like that in big companies, but um, but baby steps. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> ironically, just yesterday, uh, I sat in on a six-hour-long training. I, I am a lawyer, so it was a training session on leadership, and we, we had these boxes we had to fill in that looked a little bit like your boxes. In other words, are you more expressive? Are you coaching, mm-hmm. analytical? You know, sounds like the soul types. And and so I really think a lot of this is language, is is the the terms that people are using. We know that a lot of the quote unquote new age principles um, sort of were born in the last century in psychology, um, and and um, you know like like with uh, Pavlov and uh, the and the uh, levels of consciousness and. And, op- and and all these things. I like that. That's why I started off the show talking about open mindedness because there's certain things you can't you can't argue against that are right. perennial, so to speak. Uh, and and so to me, it's it's just a matter of opening up the field a little bit and trying to protect against the accusation that this is all touchy feely quackery kind of stuff and Mm -hmm. and but but the but the bottom line is that the more people doing this who are in or coming out of the business world like yourself and like so many others uh i think the more accepted it's going to be okay so that's i think that's a, a really uh fascinating feature of this field in general but let's let's move a little bit to uh, this topic of doubt and flow. And I'd like you to talk a little bit about what is it about doubt that you think uh, is a problem in the way we make decisions? Uh, it's interesting, Philip. I actually think that doubt is the problem in how we make decisions. That um, that when you, and it's a lot like the quote that you mentioned earlier, which was fantastic, by the way. I love that quote. Um, that as you are um, coming up with a, uh, an idea, so that you have an inspiration, or if you have a problem to solve, and the place where people, and, it, and it's different for each of us, we get hung up in different places, but, but a lot of us have this idea that there's going to be one right answer, right? We get stuck on this idea that there's, there's going to be 
um, a best choice. And it's our job to figure out what that best choice is. And people can get really wrapped around the axle trying to find what that best choice is. And that's that ambiguity. The truth is about any decision that we make, we never know all the answers. It's impossible for us to know everything about anything. And it really is a process of just trying to get yourself comfortable that the choice that you're making is a good one. And then at the end of the day, whether or not it is a good choice depends on how you feel about it. So you actually create the choice being a good choice through your belief in it, through your commitment to it, through your putting all of your energy and your focus behind that choice. And if you're stuck in doubt about that choice, it's either going to prevent you from choosing anything or it's going to make you undermine the choice you make. So so if the real determining factor about whether what you choose is good or not is going to be you, is going to be whether or not you put your force and your energy behind one particular choice, and doubt is the thing that prevents you from doing that. It prevents you from either picking in the first place or from really getting your energy behind the thing that you chose. Yeah. So think, it really is – it undermines whatever it is you're trying to do. Yeah, I, I think that that is a step forward in terms of uh, the value add of this – of your book, um, Undoubtedly Awesome. And I have a quote here from, from your book that speaks to that, and it says, A choice often becomes the best choice, not because it's inherently best, but because of how you choose it. And I, the, the example that I'm going to use right now that maybe you could uh, talk about is I have a friend that's in a business, then they have a product, and it's a technological, it's a technology, it's actually um, involving bugs and mosquitoes that that either um you know eat up pollution or that or that cure some disease or something and it's sort of a fast it's sort of a biological product and it's wow. uh it's very um advanced there are a lot of smart people behind it but they can't seem to make decisions on actually selling it because they want to have utter certainty in in the market <laughs> They it, they sort of want they 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 can't figure out really how much risk to take or whether to take any risk. It's, it's as if they want utter certainty before mm-hmm. they make a decision. And so, to me, that that was that resonated with me when I was reading your 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 book because it's like um, the, your own quote from 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 Theodore Roosevelt in your book about just make a de- I feel you know I feel like tell him, just make a decision go <laughs> you know stop. just do something right right right, right. right, right, right. <laughs> you're sitting on the fence uh, going nowhere because you want utter certainty before you even make a decision which there's no such thing so right. so now um, let's talk about this process here because I think this is very very helpful. And I I know you talk about the difference engine, which is really cool, but you also break down this process of decision making into three steps. So so let's 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 get into this a little bit about how you examine uh, decision making. Yes. So. And so so you're wondering about the 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 process that you use to go through or how a decision is actually made? Yes, yes. And you know, I know that you go through the the three steps of pre-commitment, et cetera. And so so does this begin with you evaluating how decisions are made and then you come out and you talk about the difference engine. So right. so let so so why don't you tell us how you approach this and what sort of um, 
what uh, epiphany or, or what or what uh, inspiration you had that led you to conclude that it's really the process as opposed to the um, the best decision? Right. Um, you know, it actually for me, my I think my initial aha moment, and it this whole process, different pieces of it, it, it really was. I do give a lot of credit to synchronicity, is and to serendipity, or however you want to call it, that it came to me in flashes, and then I would test ideas, and I would go back, and I would find the research, and it all it all came together in a way that felt very purposeful. Um, but the first aha moment I had was was really thinking about comparison about thinking about and that is what we call the difference engine is how do we think um, how do we understand how and, and people think yeah we compare things we compare what we have to what somebody else has but it's much deeper than that 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 comparison is the way in which we understand and make sense of our world is that is that if you are um, if you if you have one coffee mug, you have no way of knowing if it's a good mug or a bad mug, if it's tall or it's short. You have no way of describing or identifying that mug unless you have something to compare it to. A mug in itself, by itself, is it's very hard to understand what it is unless you can compare it to a table or a lamp or another mug. You have to have our whole world and the whole way that we begin to identify and comprehend everything around us is through this idea of comparison. So it's the idea of being able to compare is is hugely helpful and where our whole thinking process is adapted to allow us to do it, to make sense of our world. Um, and so our, our world has tons and tons of ambiguity in it. And we use this skill, what I call your your difference engine, which allows you to find the difference between things. Um, and it, it serves us enormously well. It really does help to, to limit the ambiguity in your world until it goes in overdrive, until it takes over and it continues to compare after you want it to stop. Yeah, and yeah. and that's that's where people get into trouble. Yeah, that that I thought was really good. And just going through this in a logical way, you know, you, you have this these stages and I think you do it twice, but you have these these simple stages, the pre commitment stage to making a decision. You know, mm-hmm. buying a new dishwasher and you and you approach it like you know, the normal person um, would compare different models, look at Consumer Reports, go to the store, go to Home Depot, uh, read Yelp or whatever the, the reviews are. And use. And so you sort of compare things. And it, it, I thought it was really helpful to call it the difference engine because it is true that there's something in your brain that's sort of rattling off, calculating in some kind of subtle way the differences between these things. And mm-hmm. and then and then of course you have this and then this moment of decision where you say okay I'm going to buy the Kenmore brand right whatever and because that's the best one but this is the critical thing I think that that really was helpful and a lot of people and I'm and I do this myself you make a decision but then you start second guessing it. And this yes. is this is where you say that the difference engine gets carried away. So why why don't you talk about that a little bit? Because I think that is really cool. Yeah, sure. So and it's it's interesting. A lot of us think that making a decision is a thing that happens in an instant. That it's the moment that we hand over our credit card or we sign the contract to purchase the dishwasher, whatever it is, that that counts as making a decision. 
And it's the moment where we choose and we say, ah, I've decided, I've made my choice and I'm done with this process. But the truth is, is that that's just the first step. And some of us stop there. We never continue past that moment. And if we never continue past that moment, we don't engage the aspect of our psychology that allows us to to, to make the difference engine behave differently. <laughs> in yeah. other words, we stay in comparison mode. The only thing that's going to get you out of that comparison mode is if you take the next two steps. So you have to make the decision and then you have to take that extra step of burning your bridges and giving up all of your alternatives. And what that means is that after you you buy something, a lot of times um, people will make a purchase and then after they've made the decision, they get that little feeling of doubt. So they'll go back and they'll start um, reconsidering other things. They'll go back and they'll shop at another store. They'll check prices at another store. They'll continue to be engaged in the decision process. They're not actually fully committed to what they bought. Um, what in order to really shift how you're thinking, how your brain is actually serving you, you need to to completely give up all of your alternatives. That means you need to throw away all those brochures. If you're dating someone, that means you need to delete all the other people you were dating out of your contact list. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever it is, you really need to let go of everything else that you were considering in a real final way. And then the next step is you need to burn your bridges. And that means that if you bought something, you got to take the tags off. Right. Yeah. You need to make it impossible for you to go back. And if you do those two things, you've now fully committed. You've told yourself, nope, I'm in. I'm done. I'm no longer in the decision process. I am 100 percent committed. And that opens up the door for your different decision to, sh to shift gears. It starts behaving differently. And rather than trying to find the difference, trying to compare what you just bought to everything around it, looking to find which one is better, it's always looking better or worse, better or worse. But after you make this decision step, after you do this three-step process, making the decision, giving up your alternatives and burning your bridges, it now starts to take the thing that you chose and try to find all the reasons it's better than everything around you. So it will start to, to seek out extra added benefits that you hadn't considered before. You'll notice after you buy a car, after you're really committed to that car, when you're out driving, all of a sudden you'll notice all the other cars that are like yours. Oh, you'll start to notice all the ads that come on TV that are talking about how great your car is. And you'll start to find extra features about your car that you really love that you didn't even know were there. You start to become, um, there's actually a, a way that your brain operates where it actually filters out. If there's any negative information that comes up, if somebody says something negative about your car or there's a negative review, you actually won't hear it, that your brain doesn't actually take it up, that it, it hears less of it. So it starts to support, it sort of gets behind this choice and helps you to like it even more than you did before you bought it. Yeah, this this and, is, I think this is, this is really good. This is Philip Camello. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. I'm speaking with Ann Tucker, the author of the brand new book, Undoubtedly Awesome your own personal roadmap from doubt to flow. And we're talking about sort of, I'm going to call it a mini breakthrough in decision-making because I think it's, I think it's a, it's really a good advance. And let me, let me explain why, Anne, and maybe you could then uh, elaborate upon this a little bit. And that is when I think you've hit something that is incredibly important. And, you know, the examples go from, from 
buying a dishwasher, as we mentioned, to relationships. And you have a story in your book about that the guy that had a German girlfriend and couldn't get over her and <laughs> this whole thing, which is terrible. There is, I yes. mean, there, there are people, and, 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 you know, my daughter's in high school. There, there are girlfriends of hers that have broken up with guys like six months ago that are still texting them and they want you know they're they're checking up on you know all these um social media things you know they're they're still sort of you know they can't let go and we always we always knew there was something wrong with that but but with you know this whole thing about not letting go but but now you sort of put it in sort of scientific terms which is that which is that they haven't committed they haven't burned a bridge Mm -hmm. you know and they haven't um you know, thrown out um, the the connections with the past, and 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 the the first question I have for you on this is that knowing now this commitment to commitment or this committing to commitment that this this burning bridges um, stage are your are your decisions now better than they were because do yeah, you it's approach a, it's a- I mean, since before that, yeah, Yeah, it's a great question because it answers yes, actually. I do eat my own dog food, yes, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, and it it has made an enormous difference in my life. I think the 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 overlying thought that kind of guides me that came from, from all of this learning I did in the writing of this book was that. Our thoughts are really, really powerful, that our our thoughts are what directs our whole life experience. And they are, uh, you can have them be diffuse and distributed all over the place. If you're allowing your focus to be pulled in a lot of different directions, you're just going to make a lot less progress in your life. If you're, if you're trying to start a new relationship, but you've got, you know, two of your eyeballs are back in other relationships that you had before, and you're still, you're spending energy on those things, right? You've got energy leaks all over you. If you're living in a house, but you keep thinking about the next place that you want to move to, you're leaking energy out to this other life that doesn't exist. So how many energy leaks do we have? That's what doubt creates, right? It creates this, this feeling where you're not really committed. You're not focusing all that energy in one direction, And I can say the most material change I've noticed since I've been aware of this, been aware that when I have these leaks, what it's costing me, and I've been able to shore up and say, okay, I'm going to choose to do it differently because I don't want to have that energy leak. Things in my life have just started working really, really well. (laughs) Yeah, well, well, that's that's sort of what I want to move to the flow in a second here. But the point that I'm making that is so helpful here is that most people don't think about the committing to commitment stage. In other words, you make mm-hmm. a decision. You buy the Kenmore. You buy the Subaru. Right. You decide to marry Sue instead of Jane. And and that, that the decision ends it all. But, but if you approach that decision, and of course it's a little easier talking in terms of products, like your blender, yeah. for example, but or the dishwasher, but if you approach that decision with the mindset, hey, I am making that decision, and once I make that decision, I am going to throw away all the Consumer Report reviews, I'm going to throw mm-hmm. away all the other brochures, and I am going to burn any connection, I mean, to the other alternatives. If you right. approach it like that, I think it, it sounds like really a really healthy thing to do because you don't have to reinvent the wheel. You don't have to read your book 
and figure out and figure out. Right. Oh, I was supposed to commit to the commit. I mean, you know ahead of time that yeah. hey, this is all part of the process. Are, are you doing that now? Are you doing that kind of? Oh, absolutely. And here's what's interesting is that is that, okay, when I don't do it, if there's some practical reason in my life where a decision stays open for some reason, I'm extremely aware of what's happening. So when I have a decision that that has to go on for some period of time, I'll recognize and I'll see myself leaking energy towards that decision. So it is, uh, for example, okay, and I think I talk about it in the book is um, my husband and I bought a vacation home. Uh, uh, some months, it was maybe a year ago. And it's a total wreck, right? Beautiful location, but it's a total disaster. And we bought it. And then immediately afterwards, we thought, what are we doing? We've both got careers. We've got four kids. How are we going to manage this, this project? And it became a source of doubt. And I'm, I'm aware of it. I'm looking at that thinking, okay, we bought this. We're not fully committed to it. I'm leaking a bunch of energy over here, worrying. We keep talking. We keep having every morning. We'd have this. Should we keep it? Should we sell it? Should we keep it? Should we sell it? Right? Huge energy drain. Right. Worrying about the decision is takes much more energy than just doing it, than just managing the project, either staying with it or selling it one way or the other. So, you know, so we did go through a process of saying, okay, okay we're going to really commit to this choice. And we deliberately took steps to invest ourselves in the decision. So we um, deliberately started working on women. Through and, and even though we couldn't make major progress on the project because we didn't have our permit yet, there was things we could do. We could do some light demolition. We could pull out the yicky carpets. So, and we ended up, uh, we bought a, a portable hibachi and brought it over and had some friends over and had a little barbecue. Right. Just to make it feel like we owned it, to make it feel like we were developing memories there or developing some attachment to it. And it, it made a huge difference. It made us feel, and it, and it took the decision off the table. It made us commit to it. And it, it felt there was much less friction. So there are some decisions in your life where the decision stays open for some period of time, maybe because you don't have a choice. Like, for example, uh, my oldest son right now is applying to college. He's waiting for his decisions on colleges. You know, all the responses are going to be coming back in the next two weeks. And he's in this forced state of ambiguity for the next two weeks. So there's nothing he can do about it. But the thing is to identify, to realize that you are leaking energy in those areas and to try to do what you can to to either commit yourself. In his case, he has to wait till he gets his answer. But in the case of, of our vacation house, it was, OK, there's there are things we can do now to invest ourselves emotionally in this choice and to feel like we're truly committed to it. OK, so now we're going to move to a different level. And ironically and parenthetically, my daughter is also senior and going through the same thing. So we have so, <laughs> so, so we have that in common and we have that ambiguity. And um, let me put it this way. Observing is probably better than experiencing that kind of ambiguity. But yes. we all need our experiences in life. OK, so moving to the next level here. And I touch upon this in the beginning when I asked you about the sort of the evolution of business coaching. There's this thing called flow. And, you know, your first chapter is called Doubt and Flow. I entitled the show Doubt and Flow. And you've you said a couple times about leaking energy. And I read that quote in the beginning of the show about um, second thoughts uh, impair the, the vital onrush of life, something like that, from, um, as I said, from Theodore Roosevelt. And... Now, this flow thing, of course, has a long spiritual history, mm-hmm. and it's, you know, we could trace it all the way, you know, it probably goes back to the Tao, and, and you know, the way, 
and it really is you know to me it's always amazing that the new age folks are sort of reframing a lot of these eastern ideas uh in the the example i give a lot uh the celestine prophecy which was one of the early new age um sort of touchy feely books that really mm-hmm. was trashed by most people um but but sold a lot but it had a, it it was about synchronicities essentially yeah. and uh um, yeah. And I've had a lot of people on this show who talk about being in the flow and that it increases your synchronicity and serendipity and all this. And it's, it's all, it's, it, was, it was sort of, um, how can I put this? It was sort of educational for me or reaffirming for me to read your book and learn that in the simple process of sort of cleaning up your energy levels and and, and opening your mind on on how to make decisions that you were sort of directing your energy getting into the flow uh, and so that's why I'm saying we're, you know we're going to a different level here so let's let let's talk a little bit about why that's a good thing uh, on, on, uh, you know everyone said well getting into flow it sounds well that's really neat but what difference does it make to be to get to not have these energy leaks and to be in the flow what is what's yeah what does that mean? Honestly, I think it makes all the difference. It is about, um, think about the, a, a life without friction. So in a life where you're experiencing a lot of doubt, like I said, if, if you are, um, uh, if you have all this energy and it's going in a bunch of different directions, um, it is like you're trying to, um, uh, manage four or five different jobs at once and you're multitasking and you're working a little bit on this one and a little bit on that one and a little bit on that one. But even worse, it's not just multitasking. It is the five jobs are in competition with each other. So when you're working on one job and then you switch to another, you're actually pulling back on the first. You're actually throwing doubt. You're actually taking steps backwards in the first job. So it's literally like you're, you're distributing your energy and all every time you move your focus from one to another, the progress that you made in the first direction is lost. So, so if you're in this doubt state, you can end up undermining whatever progress that you want to make. And you can end up just spinning in circles, retaking the same steps over two steps forward, three steps back over and over and over again. And when you are able to get all of your energy, it's like a think about like what a laser does when you throw, focus light through a prism and it takes that energy and it makes it really sharp and really bright and all in one direction and how much more powerful it is. And your thoughts, your energy is the same way. And the, the focusing mechanism is the decision, right? Your decision is that prism is that thing that takes all that energy and focuses it down and points it all in the same direction. And when that happens, your life just starts to go more smoothly. And people talk a lot about being in flow, about finding the great parking spot or things, you know, you get hit all the green lights when you're driving home. And yeah, those things happen. But bigger than that is that whatever it is you're trying to accomplish comes more easily with more joy, that you're not fighting yourself. And so as you're, you're more joyful, we all know law of attraction, all of these things that you start as things start to come to you that are in resonance with that ease, with that grace. So since I've been going through this change myself and looking at my decisions differently and making things, uh, making them 
making all of my energies align more towards the deliberate choices that I make, um, everything's been lining up beautifully. Got my book published. I had random, random fortuitous events. Here's an unusual thing. My house got randomly, my, my architect submitted it and was just published in a magazine um, that I didn't, I had nothing to do with it. Literally, they just showed up at my door, took pictures of my house, and it's got publicity from my new business. And, <laughs> yeah. and, it, and it's literally out. It's actually published today, of all things. Yeah. And I had nothing to do with that. Yeah. Um, it just happened. And it, that's flow. Yeah. Where, yeah. where the universe sort of lines up to help you accomplish what it is you're trying to accomplish. Yeah. And I, th- I think what's um, very sort of uh, deep and invigorating about this about this topic is that I've come to the conclusion that folks could look at this from the singular or the plural or the universal if they want. I mean, we could look at mm-hmm. this purely from the individual perspective. Uh, if you don't want to get all spiritual about everything, you could just say, well, this helps me, this process helps me to be more clear, confident about my decisions it, mm-hmm. it removes doubt. It allows me to focus better. You could talk about it on a very personal level, and there's really a lot of value just in looking at this from a personal sort of unitary standpoint. If you yeah. want to, if you want to ratchet it up, like you like like you did, and like of course I would do, uh, and say, well, you are sort of getting in line with quote unquote the universe or or the spiritual essence or. Mm-hmm. Or some kind of um, you know divine entity, whatever, however you want to frame it, um, that that is incredibly important. And I always say, well, until someone proves, I, I look at it from the other perspective. Until somebody proves that we're not part of like some universal, uh, uh, holistic entity then I'm going to assume we are. because I mean, right. I, I, I sort of take it from the other perspective. Some people would say, well, prove it to me. And I say, well, prove prove the opposite. And we can have a big, you know. <laughs> prove me wrong. Have, right. we can have a big, long discussion on that. My book, The Collapse of Materialism, talks about that. And, and my point being is that what do you have to lose by assuming that you're part of this universal driving energy? And, mm-hmm. and uh, so... It, so, so to me, that's like the added bonus to sort of clearing the runway and and being more unified, more confident in, in your decision. Something as simple as this, uh, and I always love it when people uh, like you have sort of tips to have more synchronicity. Because I think that that to me, it's there's something about it that says I must be doing something right. (laughs) That's exactly right. It's like a little confirmation. Yeah, I mean, I I Mm -hmm. uh, I had to leave uh, a a big law firm because of a a firm conflict, and it was a very difficult decision because I was with this firm for over twenty years, and but I had to do it because for. You know, for all sorts of reasons, including the fact that my best—I couldn't represent my best client on this case. But I got to my new firm, and across the hallway was a paralegal whose name was exactly the same as my old law firm. 
And it's, it's not like John Smith either. It's not like John Smith. I mean, this was like a unique name that I'm thinking, well, I, I must be in the right place because everything is connecting here. So, so anyway, that that's and I have my own little synchronistic, you know, synchronistical things, which yeah. I think are really cool because they're telling you that that you might be doing something right. Okay, so now we, you just touched upon it, and I'm going to go down a little bit here. The difference engine, um, you, and you and you you mentioned this a little bit, but the difference engine in the beginning is sort of comparing in some kind of you know calculating way uh, the differences between these alternatives. You make a decision if you eliminate alternatives, burn the bridge from all those those alternatives, and focus on the thing you decided upon. Now this thing you're calling the difference engine has this other feature, and and I know you mentioned it, but I'd like you to have you talk about this a little bit because this is I thought really cool, where all of a sudden a difference engine um, starts fulfilling a different role. Right, right, and so right, so after you fully commit to your decision, it does start to. It's like it throws a switch in your difference engine. It makes it behave differently. And the role that it plays is really different. It starts to essentially put distance between the thing that you chose and everything else. Um, and, and by doing that, like I said, it makes space for you to see all the benefits. It actually holds up all of the benefits and shows you rather than saying which one is better, it says what is better about the one that you have. So it's the same function, same kind of brain function, right? It's the type of comparison, but it's comparison where it's, it's searching for what's better. So it really does help you to see what, you, what you've committed to in a new light. It, it, to me, this is, if you had to take a scientific approach to falling in love, this is what it is. Yeah. <laughs> this is essentially, it is, it is telling you the, the, what the, the process your brain goes through to help you fall in love, whether it's a car or a washing machine or a person. Yeah, I, I thought that that is it's sort of that's like the added benefit of this process because you have now sort of committed, fully committed to the decision. You've gotten rid of this comparison mode, mm-hmm. and now you are reaffirming your decision. And again, it goes back to to me. It goes back to the same thing, which is that you have now eliminated doubt. You, you right. now and you're and you're now as you say in the flow to have your energy directed and you know this this and I don't know what the listener thinks about this but it you know simple is usually good because simple means we could actually understand it and implement it as opposed mm-hmm. to a 16 mm-hmm. point process here um, <laughs> which a lot of people would have and, and most people and I, I think once you get past three tips, three stages it gets a little fuzzy unless you're really going to study it uh and i'm being a little facetious there so 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 i there's another there's a another um feature here before we talk about soul types and that is the role of emotions in decisions and we've talked about that we touch upon that a little bit but you really have some really some some good some good examples. You talk about the difference between eating a cake and a and a garbage dump and and in a and in a Boston bakery, uh, and <laughs> the it really is. It's, so I like to. I mean, it's probably all related here. But but what is it about um, the connection 
between emotions and decisions? Is it are emotions yeah. part of decisions, and and how how do you see that playing out? So the it's actually interesting. The emotions play a much more significant role in your decision making than than you might realize. That that at the end of the day, even though you think about a decision, right? You you rationalize, you process all the data. At the end of the day, the thing that makes the choice, the thing that says, do I like this one better or that one better, is your emotions. You feel your way to a choice. And this is, there's got lots of examples in the book, and I, I reference the studies that, that show this. Um, but, but no matter how analytical you are, at the end of the day, if you, if you aren't able to feel, and if, if somebody loses that capability to, to process emotions, they aren't able to make a decision. They literally can't feel which choice they like better. So they can't choose. They can look at all the data. They can say this one has more, or this one has less, but they won't be able to emotionally discern if more is better or if less is better. So, so emotions are, emotions are how you choose. You have to feel it. So emotions play a really key role from the beginning. And once you've committed, the emotions are still a very key part of the process because what ends up happening is, is as your difference engine is helping you to separate the thing that you chose from everything else and showing you what's better about it, it enables your emotions to get engaged, to get further engaged. And what, what needs to happen is you need to be able to invest yourself in whatever it is that you chose. So, and this is your emotions starting to become, to take whatever it is that you've chosen and to, to see it, to identify it as part of yourself. So, in other words, if you think about why is it, if you have a pet, why is it that your pet is particularly special to you, right? Why is it, if you look at all the other, and realistically, if you compare your dog or your fish to all the other dogs and fish out there, it probably isn't the, the absolute most brilliant, cutest, perfectest, amazing pet in the world, but you feel that it is, that you identify this dog is yours or this fish is your fish, right? that it becomes part of you in a way. You identify with it, it's part of your family, it's part of your identity. And that sense of identity and investment is where those emotions get put into the decision. You put a little tiny piece of yourself in the thing that you chose. And that's what feeling, the feeling is of falling in love with something, is you've you've taken it on and brought it into as part of yourself. And that process helps you to talk about eliminating doubt, is once that happens, that ability to see what's good in the thing that you chose is is really amplified and your ability to overlook what's bad about it it's easier and easier that's uh that that's really helpful now i have a question for you first this is this is philip camella this is conversations beyond science and religion i'm speaking with ann tucker the author of the brand new book undoubtedly awesome your own personal roadmap from doubt to flow and we're talking right now about the role of emotions in decision making and a common uh, refrain is that the the line well that was an emotional decision that was yeah. and that's supposed to be, <laughs> that that's supposed to be a bad thing when, when well that was an emotional decision you know i decided to have an extra uh, piece of cake or i decided yes. to go away for the week. I mean, how do you, is that good or bad? I mean, this is, I'm trying to figure this out because um, it's something that I struggle with. I'm sure others do, which is, you know, are emotional decisions bad? We like making them, but what is the, what is the balance here? 
between it's you? A, it's an interesting question. And it, it actually treads a fine line because one of the things my book doesn't do is it doesn't tell you how to make better choices, right? It doesn't tell you here's how to analyze your choice to come up with the best numerical model to understand if this choice is better than that choice. It What it does tell you is how to understand and how to improve your own process right. so that you like what you chose better. And, and sometimes some of your choices are going to be, they're going to turn out great and some aren't, right? There's, sometimes you're going to choose something that like that second piece of cake and you say, Ooh, I wish I hadn't done it. But, but the emo- the role of emotions in that is, is it always bad when you make an emotional decision? Not at all. The role that emotions play is that, the, or the benefit that they bring is that they're really fast, that you can make your fastest decisions when you're making decisions with, if you're in an emergency, if you're trying to respond very, very quickly, if you need to move on a dime, being able to make decisions with your emotions is where it's at. That's what you want to do because it's like a direct line directly from, from the heart to your head, right? It's coming right out, right to your mouth. We're moving immediately. And that's, that's the role that emotions play. And those decision styles, the, the, the people who have that particular soul type that are able to access that are the, the fastest decision makers that we've got. So and we could talk about that more if we go into the soul types. Um, but, but whether or not that decision turns out to be a good decision or a bad decision um, depends in the moment on, on what it is, right? It's not always making a, a fast decision or making a quick decision isn't necessarily doesn't sometimes it ends up being the best choice. Um, it, it, it really doesn't have as much, it, it, you know, your skills about how you make choices is going to be dependent on your own soul type. And sometimes you, you personally are going to be a lot more comfortable. And Philip, I'm guessing based on what I think your soul type is, that you're going to be a lot more comfortable when you have time to take a, a full analysis and really think through things. But other people are going to be really uncomfortable with that approach, and they're going to feel a lot better if they can go with their gut and make a decision very quickly. Yeah, I, I think there's a whole book on this topic that's coming to mind now, uh, Thinking Fast and Thinking Slow. Right. By the Nobel mm-hmm. Prize yeah. winner Dan, Daniel Kahneman, uh, and it, it's a fascinating topic in and of itself. The you know the uh, the moral of the story, I think, is what you're saying is that e- emotions play a part of any decision. They and, do, and they do. Whether it's you know ninety percent or twenty percent, you really can't make a decision without without some emotions. I, I really um, also thought that. You have a line here, uh, or a, a sentence in your book about how emotions can only experience what is true right in that moment, and that that I thought was really good. And you give the example that I think we've all had, which is that you're invited to a party or social gathering, <laughs> you're sitting around, um, you know, in your casual wear, and you don't, and, you, and you're trying to get, and you're trying to figure out if you have to, if you should take the effort. To go, but once once you make that decision, it's it seems like all of a sudden your mood changes, and mm-hmm. because you're in a different environment, you're, and and the, and the emotions change. And I I think about how people who get really depressed um, to you know to um, severe levels, yeah. and a lot of it is because they don't get up and see the world a little bit. They don't change their their as a sociologist would say their milieu uh, or their mm-hmm. environment uh, and I think that that is very very helpful so uh, let's let's t- touch upon 
soul types here. And soul types yeah. is something that uh, is sort of um, central central to your analysis and obviously we don't have time to go into the into the nitty-gritty of all these but but why why are soul types important um i'm glad you asked because it's actually one of my favorite parts of the book is the soul types and what it is 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 i guess a way that i like to explain it is that if you if you imagine uh way back when and this is just a, a story um, imagine that there was source or universe or God or whatever you want to describe it before there was anything else, just floating around by itself, trying to understand itself. And we know that we understand things through comparison. If God or source or universe is by itself, can't compare itself, can't understand itself. So it divides itself into seven pieces and gives each of us one of those seven pieces, right? And this is a creative gift because source, universe, God is a creative force. We each have one of these seven pieces. And then if you think of every problem as a shape that has seven sides, and on each side there's a door, each of us has a key to one of those doors, one way into the problem, right? So when you bring that creative gift into the problem, you have your particular favorite door that you like to go into that's most accessible to you. And I, I think that's one of the things that makes working as a group so much fun is because when we all come back together, we all bring our seven keys back together. It's like we're recreating source together. We're recreating that original creation. The feeling of working together can be so exhilarating, can be frustrating, can be hard, but can be really exciting um, because we really are bringing all those aspects of problem solving, all those creative gifts back together to form one. And the soul types Essentially, it is, if you think of that that creative gift, what is your particular way into the problem? Well, the way to look at it, I like to take these abstract concepts and bring them back down to earth and say, okay, how do I dissect this in a way that makes it really practical so that you can not only understand it, but you can apply it, use it, understand it in your own life, is if I look at it through how you make decisions. It tells me everything about how you think, how you solve problems, and the way that you choose, the way that you are hardwired, really from birth, and it's not based on your parents, that's why I call it your soul type. This isn't something that you learn, it's something that you just part of you from the moment that you were born. And if, if I look at, at the way that you solve problems, the way that you think, it is setting you up. It actually enables you, gives you specific strengths that make you particularly good at one aspect of problem solving. And if you know what that is, well, you can apply it in your work. You can apply it in your life. It helps you to understand how you are different from everybody else and what those real strengths are, how you can take most advantage of them. Okay, so what are, okay, so what are the soul types? So um, there's seven different types, and um, there's, they're called optimizing, learning, efficient, coaching, expressive, experimenting, and collaborative. And they, they each of them have, uh, like I said, a different set of gifts. And by the way, if somebody wants to, to find out their soul type, I have set up a, an online survey they can take. It's only three questions at undoubtedlyawesome.com. Um, uh, they can go and it'll give them actually different information than what's in the book, but it'll give them a little rundown on, on some of the uh, description of their soul type. Cool, cool. Because I um, I took the test and I I, I became a learning like you. Sort yes, of, like I you could sort have of told you that. <laughs> yeah, well, 
it's it's funny. I mean, I was tr- I was trying to get myself out, and folks, there is this flow chart, which is probably similar to what's on your website. There's a flow chart, page fifty six of the book, and I kept trying to get myself out of this flow chart to get to be something different, but I kept one I kept winding up in the same spot. And just just so uh, folks know, right off the bat. You know, there's an example here about buying a new washer and dryer, which is something I do a lot, by the way. But but um, <laughs> I do watch my wife buy, and I, who knows how I would do this? But but putting some other um, sort of uh, apparatus in there, appliance in there. It says the very first decision is faster than average or slower than average. Faster than average is with excitement, impatience, urgency, or impulsively, and that's just not me. And then slower than average is thoughtfully, carefully, or methodically. So I guess so once so once you go once you have that division, you're sort of forced by her flow chart into these other things, and and uh, it tells you your soul types. Now, where did these soul types come from? So, you know, it's funny, like I said, it it evolved over a very long period of time. It evolved over about an eight year period where I was refining this and refining it and refining it until I uh, and it was all through hands on practical using it um, in uh, with my clients. So and and I became as I became clearer and clearer. What was amazing about it, it was it was a perfect laboratory because, like I said, I was going very deep with each of these clients and collecting feedback on all of them. So I knew not only how they perceive their strengths and weaknesses, but how everyone around them perceives strengths and weaknesses. So what I started noticing is that the strengths and the weaknesses lined up. And that I would see patterns and I would start to notice, oh, here's this particular person is, boy, they really are, they're, they're fantastic at getting things done. They really know how to drive a business, um, but they tend to have a reluctance to commit to things. They tend to be dissatisfied. I started to notice these, these commonalities and it became a pattern. And then I would test that pattern over and over and over again. And it refined and refined and, and now it's, it's, very reliable, very, very reliable. So and that's one of the fun things is you read this, you will see yourself in it. And it doesn't tell you everything about you. This isn't a personality test. It's not going to be, it's not like Myers-Briggs where it tries to be all things to all people. This is specifically just looking at your cre- the creative aspect of you, how you think and solve problems. And it, it gives you, a, I think it's in, in my mind, it's if you're going to do some self-learning, this is an incredible place to start because everything that you do, every every action that you take starts with a decision. So it really is, if you're going to look for the biggest bang for your buck, this is it. Yeah, and uh, it's it's a an approach sort of to categorizing people that I think flows from or is connected to other types of of studies, whether it's psychology, souls, emotions, personalities. So it's not. I mean, I don't think it's it's not like off the wall. And it it's um, if you use the flow chart and the question and answer, you sort of wind up somewhere. And I think one of the one of the points you make, which I think is has to be true, which is that even though one of us may may um, you know each of us may have sort of a primary soul uh in in normal life we have to make use of all of all of them or a lot of them i mean i'm looking at this collaborative Mm -hmm. um which is i guess a word that's being used a lot i i'm uh, it's been used at my work a couple times and coaching was used yesterday in my my own little seminar expressive experiment you know we have to be efficient which is another soul type 
but I do think I do think it's helpful and and as you say once you understand that soul type it sort of makes you what what appreciate or more what what you're more aware of uh your decision making process is is that the key here or well, it, it does two things for you. First, if you think about, we talked a lot earlier in our conversation about the decision engine, a difference engine, and about the 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 way that you think through problems, how essentially what is the function inside your own head that brings you to decision and helps you to fall in love with your decisions. If you look at your the description of your soul type, it describes your own specific process to you. So it says, okay, some people are going to think about it this way, but for you, here's how you're different. Here's the shortcut that you take every time, or here's the place where you tend to leap a little sooner than everyone else. So it shows you, and for yours, if you read your description, yours is yours follows the model pretty carefully, Philip. You tend to be the most logical, the most analytical of all the decision styles, and your natural process follows my model process pretty consistently. So you wouldn't have seen that difference for you as much. Some Most of the other decision styles vary more, and they tend to have, like I said, there'll be these shortcuts that they take, or they'll take, they'll be the abbreviations, or they'll be longer in some places. And understanding that and saying, okay, here's how I'm different, and then seeing what does that give me? What strengths and weaknesses does that give me? By being shorter in a particular place, you might think, oh, it's a shorter process. It's not going to be as good. Not true. By being shorter, they're actually circumventing the process that creates doubt. They're actually um, more influential. They're more, there's, there's things that come up because of this, that, that, that it gives you, that process does. And in the same way that your process gives you unique strengths, the fact that you are more thoughtful and more reasonable, more analytical, it makes you a, a very solid decision maker, but it also, you, you bring those gifts of, of being able to think through things and to analyze and to be open-minded longer than any other decision style. So it makes you sort of a keeper of knowledge. You're, you have a very neutral energy, which allows you to balance out some of the more extreme decision styles. Huh. So it, it is um, understanding your own style and then understanding it's particularly in reference to all the content at the beginning of the book. It helps you to understand how how what you do is different and what it gives you. So the goal should never be to change your style to match the, the bland basic style, like the you know, to take out what's good about you. The goal is to to understand your difference and to celebrate it, to amplify it, to take as much advantage of it as you can, but then to be aware of where it also stops you up and to see that when it's happening and to make corrections so that you can get all the good and minimize the bad yeah that's well that's uh that was that was that was very well put and uh as luck would have it we have reached the end of our show here and again i hope that um you found it as fun as i did and then the listener and i just i want to say here that ann's book i just looked at this thing it's like a hundred and 16 pages and which is good i think more books are moving to the to shorter books but for, for 116 pages she gets a lot done uh and a, and a lot of really helpful uh not only tips but a lot of insightful information here uh that that we that uh, most of which or some of which we covered on the show so and how do how do folks find your book 
Thanks, Phil. They uh, they can find it at undoubtedlyawesome.com. Um, and like I said, there is the survey there if they want to take that. And, and the information that's on there is different from what's in the book. So that's kind of fun to do anyways. Um, and then it's also available on Amazon. Right. So if they just search undoubtedlyawesome.com, it's on there. Yeah, and once yeah, and once again, I, I again I this is this is one of those this is one of those books that does that I think will advance the ball for most people in understanding decision making. I got I got a lot out of it, particularly this this difference engine, which is which is really good. And I go back to the point that I started here which is that if we can deal with doubt and if we could get doubt out of our lives, particularly after we make decisions, uh, the reward is not only sort of a cleaner slate and a more confident approach, but also we, we have the opportunity of getting into the flow, and that is most likely a very good thing. This is Philip Camella. This is Conversations beyond science and religion and we'll see you next week thanks for listening you've been listening to conversations beyond science and religion hosted by philip camella to find out more about philip and his book the collapse of materialism visit the collapse of materialism.com